Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work. This week, I had the pleasure of chatting with Tessa West, Associate Professor of Psychology at New York University. Tessa is a leading expert in the science of interpersonal communication. Her work has been covered by various outlets such as the New York Times and Time Magazine. She is most recently the author of Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. In this episode, we chat about why some people are jerks at work. How do you deal with them? Are there more jerks at work now than in the past? Can we find jerks in all cultures around the world? How can we detect jerks? Who is most likely to be taken advantage of by jerks at work? On the flip side of jerks, how can you turn coworkers into friends? Finally, Tessa talks about what it was like to write a trade book, whether it is harder than writing scientific papers, and how she tries to be optimistic about people despite this dark research topic. Hope you enjoy this conversation. I am terribly excited today to be talking with Tessa West for the Stanford Psychology Podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. Before we talk about your work and your new wonderful book, I want to ask you, how are you doing? This year must have been a wild ride for you. Not only is there a pandemic and a war, you also you published a book and you have been on every podcast that has ever existed. <laughs> You're still a professor and teaching and you have your lab. How are you doing? That's a great question. And, uh, you know, we're recording this on, you know, World Health uh, Well-Being Day or, or something like that. And <laughs> it's hard. I'm not going to lie. It's exhausting. So, I mean, I feel like I have five jobs and it's a struggle in trying to kind of fit it all in. Um, but I'm doing good. I think the key is just to sort of keep your head above water and to just, you know, write out your to-do list every day. And if you get a third of those things done, then, then you call it an accomplishment. <laughs> so, so that's about where I'm at right now. But it's definitely been very exhausting, for sure. Wow. Well, now I want to thank you again for making the time. <laughs> Seems like so special. So thank you. <laughs> but this is fun for me. I mean, these kinds of podcasts are, are super interesting. And I love just kind of bringing the science to the masses and, and explaining it in a way that is digestible to people. So, you know, for me, this is this kind of stuff that really gets me through the day, honestly. Oh, sweet. Well, then let's get started and let's talk about a somewhat depressing topic, maybe about jerks at work and people who are uh, who engage in all kinds of toxic behaviors at work. What kind of jerk behavior would you say is most common at work that people most commonly run into? You know, that's a really interesting question. And I think it really kind of changes through the times. Right now, the most common type of jerk behavior we're actually seeing is much more hands-off. It's things like free riding, not pulling your weight, bosses who are neglectful because they're just, you know, doing a million things at once. And I think we can actually sense this when we look at the conversations people are having at work. We put the word quiet in front of everything now, right? Quiet quitting or quiet firing or quiet whatever. And I, and I see that as sort of like a code word for being like passively aggressive hands-off and kind of not carrying your weight or not having that confrontation that you need to have with a boss. So kind of ironically, the, this type of not doing anything, not engaging is a type of jerk behavior that we often don't label as jerk behavior. 
But when you do these things, they often really trickle down and they can affect your team members. And so I think this kind of hands off, throwing up your hands, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm going to go watch TV instead of, you know, do the work that my team needs me to do. Or as a boss, just like not deal with all these little people around me. That's the kind of dominant form of work jerkery that I think is actually really common right now. And it's the opposite of another kind of jerk behavior, which is micromanagement, where you don't trust your employees and you look into every detail that they are doing and just supervise them very closely, which is also not great because it's a sign of distrust. It's almost like an insult. I don't trust you to do your work, so I have to micromanage you. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think there's this kind of interesting thing where a lot of times what we see is micromanagers are also neglectful because they can't micromanage all the time. And so sometimes what you'll find is you'll complain to say your lab mate or someone at work and say, gosh, you know, our boss drives me crazy. They're micromanaging me. They're on top of me all the time. And then you just get this look of disbelief from the person you're talking to. And they're like, what do you mean? I haven't, I haven't heard from them in like three weeks. Well, that's because they're in a cycle and your coworkers in the off part of the cycle and you're in the on part of the cycle. So I think sort of ironically, the same people can actually kind of play the both, play both roles and, and they rotate who's in the micromanagement and who's in the neglect side. So, you know, kind of one thing I've learned in doing research in this space is that people are very colorful and they come with multiple shades of jerk. <laughs> and sometimes it's neglect and sometimes it's micromanagement. Are there any general trends in the prevalence of jerk behavior? And here I'm thinking about Socrates, 2000 years ago, who complained about young people these days. Mm -hmm. They are lazy, they are selfish, they are horrible people. <laughs> yeah. And still today, everyone claims that, you know, the world is going to shit, everything is horrible, <laughs> everything is getting worse. Are there similar claims about the workplace these days and jerk behavior on the rise? And is there actual data on this? Yeah, this is a great question. I think, you know, we reinvent the wheel all the time when we talk about this stuff. I actually don't think that there are new novel forms of jerk that haven't existed in the past. I mean, they get manifested differently because we have hybrid and all of these kinds of things. What's actually kind of new and fascinating about this is the interface between in-person work and like your behavior on social media or your behavior in private Slack channels or WhatsApp conversations. And so the medium has become a, a lot more complicated and kind of interesting to talk about. Um, Brother, um, the organization just published a study where they looked at tweets about your colleagues and they they sort of you know, they rank ordered in the UK and the US sort of the meanest tweet cities where people just like Glasgow is horrible. Everyone hates each other, apparently, but nothing is bad as compared to like some random part of Arizona. So I feel like, you know, this stuff is in the air a lot more and it's leaking out into our social media presence. And, you know, we know the research on sort of like, you know, moral language and emotion on Twitter and how those things become a lot more viral. And then they kind of feed back into the workplace and the conversations people are having you know, and everything from private Slack channels where people are talking about their bosses to, you know, using these kinds of mediums to organize, to get people to kind of stand up against bad behavior at work. That's where the novelty lies. But the general disgruntlement, I think, is the same. We're coming up with new labels for it every day. But I think that the, the general communication issues have been the same and are very similar to what they've been historically. They're about status. They're about power. They're about, you know trying to impress the right people, their generational issues, you know, these kinds of things have always been there. If we find them at every time point, I imagine we might also find them everywhere. So the types of jerk you write about, they are not just uh, weird jerks, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic jerks. We find them everywhere on this planet. We do, I think. And 
you know, one thing that's been fascinating for me is releasing this book in, I think, like eight or nine languages and seeing how different cultures take the concepts and apply it locally. And I've been shocked at just how consistently this is done in South Korea or, you know, I, I just did something in Belgium and it's the same concepts. It's like we all are. <laughs> it's somehow this human universal just to be terrible to each other in these very clear ways that everyone across culture understands. And I think, you know, of course, you're going to have things like status hierarchies and tight versus loot cultures that are going to influence which types of jerks emerge. But they do seem to be fairly human, you know, just consistent across cultures um, and across different nationalities and languages and so forth. Great. Um, great from a research standpoint, maybe not from a, from an ethical humanitarian <laughs> standpoint, but yeah. any psychological taxonomy of jerks, of course, has to deal with another established taxonomy of the dark triad or the dark tetrad, Machiavellian, psychopathic, sadistic, narcissistic people. How do you think about the link between jerks and the dark tetrad? Yeah, this is a great question. And this came up one of my chapters on the kiss up kick down is really, really kind of going to Machiavellianism and these people who are intentional jerks. So I think that, you know, when we encounter one of these folks, these sort of dark triad, narcissistic Machiavellian, do whatever it takes to get ahead types of people, they really impact our lives. And we carry that with us for a long time. So some of the people who I've talked to are like, yeah, I dealt with this person in the 80s, and I still haven't gotten over it. So that loss looms really large, but I don't think they're actually that common. I actually think it's fairly rare to encounter one of those people. Um, you know, we know that like CEOs and other people at the top of the hierarchy, they're often kind of more sociopathic than others. But on average, terrible people, it's hard for them to get promoted through the system. When they do, the impact is huge, but I think they're actually probably rarer than what people realize. I actually think most people, when they're jerks, they're not doing it intentionally to get ahead. They're doing it because they think that's the, the only way to get ahead or they're pretty clueless about what other people think of them. But if you happen to be on the receiving end of one of these folks, you're never going to forget it. And I feel like the, the scars run deep <laughs> when you've encountered one of these Machiavellian people at work, for sure. You write about these different jerks and I read your book and I was like, yeah, yeah, I know those people. Those people suck. And then, of course, you make me think about to what extent I am a jerk. <laughs> and that's a that's a terrifying realization. Like, oh, oh, yeah, I might have engaged in those behaviors, which I guess is easier to realize as hard as it still is than if you were writing about psychopaths and narcissists. I mean, like, you are also a little psychopathic. That would not be compelling, <laughs> right? I would be very defensive. Yeah, yeah. We're all psychopaths, like no one's buying that book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. And so maybe you you have instilled in people a certain openness to the jerk behavior and really led people to the point where it's like, oh, maybe I have engaged in those behaviors. Doesn't mean I'm a horrible, despicable, fundamentally untrustworthy person. But this, you know, the, the what is the quote, the line of good and evil runs through every human heart or something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of, I thought a lot about sort of why I try to get people to embrace this so much, why I throw myself under the bus in this book as much as I can to get people to embrace this. And, you know, when I first started doing research in social psychology in graduate school, I started studying dishonesty in romantic relationships and getting people to admit that they've lied and getting them to admit, you know, that it's okay. So Deb Cashy and Bella DiPaolo had some great work in the 90s on this where they just to get people to admit that one out of every five social interactions involved a lie, they had to really frame, you know, their measures around it's okay, everybody's doing it to get that honesty out. And I think sort of practicing that really early on in my career to get people to admit dark truths about themselves, that training, 
ended up kind of carrying its way through all those other sticky and uncomfortable things I've studied, like discomfort and, you know, discrimination and admitting you don't like someone or giving negative feedback, all these uncomfortable truths. You really have to get people on board with the idea that we're all capable of it. There aren't good people and bad people. There aren't dishonest people and honest people. There aren't jerks and good people, you know, and that takes a lot of work for people to kind of get there. And I think, but it's true. I think we all are perfectly capable of being shitty to each other under the right circumstances. <laughs> you know, And I'm sure during the pandemic, we all were to somebody, <laughs> you know, so I think that that's a, an important kind of point of acceptance that people should should learn to be a little more comfortable with. Let's talk about those circumstances. Under what work environments are we more likely to act in a, in a jerk kind of way? You know, we know that uncertainty, anxiety are, are sort of, they turn us into the darkest versions of ourselves. And for some people, those behaviors just manifest in a sort of top-down controlling way. So, you know, you take a situation where there's there's uncertainty, you know, with the world, with what's going on in the economy, you know, with this war, all this kind of stuff. And then that uncertainty gets manifested in our interpersonal behaviors at work. For some people, it leads them to sort of exert control. Right. So they're looking for it. So they micromanage or they they I, I use this phrase bulldoze. They take over meetings and agendas and these kinds of things. Um, you know, you layer on top of that, like moralistic belief systems that people are bringing into the workplace that kind of can bring that behavior out. But for others who are experiencing the same kind of emotional triggers, anxiety or discomfort or feeling overwhelmed, they do the opposite. They actually disengage completely. And we see this like with presenteeism at work, the idea that you physically show up, but you're totally spaced out the entire time. And I think the the same kind of basic psychological problems that we all face, feeling overwhelmed, feeling out of control, unable to predict things, low locus of control, they just lead to really different outcomes for different people. And I think you, you just have to know what yours is so that you can then kind of plan alternative behaviors around that. But I think You know, for me, you mentioned you open this with like, how are you doing all this stuff? Like, I could tell you my students were not happy <laughs> when said I was book promoting and they would, you know, try to like meet with me at 10 p.m. on a Saturday because that was the only time in my calendar. And I felt like a terrible advisor, you know, but that's that's sort of like what ended up happening. So I had to learn to kind of like recalibrate, rearrange, figure out a schedule um, but for me, being overwhelmed, they were the first people on the chopping block. So I had to see that in myself to be able to change it. But we all have these kind of, you know, psychological demons. It's just sort of how we respond that I think varies a lot. I'm trying to fill in the gap between these individual psychological demons and then how do we establish a full culture of toxic jerk behavior. Yeah. And I think part of it might be that a lot of these jerk behaviors seem to have a self-fulfilling component to them, right? If I am a micromanaging boss and I distrust my people and I micromanage them all the time, well, they will probably be less invested in the work and they will think, well, I will only do the bare minimum right now. I, why would I be nice to you? Why would I put in the work? So there seem to be certain social psychological dynamics make us leap from individual psychological processes to really establishing a culture in which that kind of behavior is established. Yeah, I also think this kind of contagion of bad behaviors often manifest in surprising ways. So, you know, the micromanager is a perfect example of they 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 sometimes breed these people who are like disengaged uh, that have no control. But more often than that, they actually breed more micromanagers. <laughs> And so the people underneath them start to micromanage down, you know, they're being micromanaged. And so they sort of push that energy to the, the people who are underneath them. Mm. 
Um, and often what they'll do is hand off some of those micromanaging jobs to someone else. Often they feel like their medial jobs are not super important and they have their own goals. And so, you know, in graduate school, if your advisor's micromanaging, you know, your writing, probably the first thing you're going to want to do is find some undergraduate research assistant who can then just handle that for you. Right? Yeah. And then you offload that work onto someone else. But then you're not teaching them like these big, important skills. You're just kind of treating them as a secretary or something like that. Mm-hmm. So we often actually see these kinds of behaviors getting passed down from generation to generation. And I think one thing that that allows this to happen is most of us have a pretty narrow view of sort of what that power dynamic is. We understand what our boss does to us, but we don't understand what their boss is doing to them. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in, in academics are a little bit weird and that professors don't really have bosses. But in most companies, middle managers, 80% of their time is spent answering to their manager. Only 20% of their time is spent with their own reports. And so if you have one of these people, you're just getting that 20% slice and you're pretty ignorant to what's going on that 80% of that other time. And so I think that's also sort of why we get these behaviors becoming contagious because we don't understand the broad context in which they're occurring or why they're occurring. And then once we don't do that, we're not very careful about making sure that they don't spread to other people. We just sort of down delegate, um, you know, some of these negative actions we just push onto someone else's desk so we don't have to deal with them. And we know from social psychological research that conformity is a big thing, right? So if I enter a new workplace and everyone is kind and generous, then I will conform to that. But if I enter a workplace where everyone is kind of a jerk, <laughs> everyone's just stabbing each other in the back and very competitive, then I might also adapt to that, even if I don't actually want to do it. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing now, and this is super fascinating, is how are those norms getting spread at work, especially when people aren't even in the office all the time? And I think they're getting spread through these like Slack channel conversations and kind of more informal mechanisms. What's fascinating about that is there are whole groups of people who are left out of those conversations, Hmm. right? So typically in an organization, we look at norms. Everyone can kind of see the behavior. Everyone can see how it could spread. We're all in agreement of like who the central nodes of a network are, who the important people are and who aren't. But, you know, as a as a professor with, you know, a huge lab and they have a bunch of Slack channels and I only have access to two of them, there could be like these whole other realities going on. And I'm pretty sure there are. I mean, my students came to me, they're like, what do you want your avatar on Slack to be? And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. They're like, you know, your avatar could look this way and it conveys this thing or this way and it conveys that thing. Or you just use your first name, all lowercase, that conveys that you're high status, all this stuff. Right. I'm like, what are you even talking about? And they're like, yeah, this guy, Doug, it's just Doug, you know, that's because he's so in charge. And I'm like, like Madonna, Prince, like, I don't get it. But this is just the world. So all of these norms are getting created and spread completely outside of awareness of other people. And, you know, often the people in power are not actually aware of the norms that they're the people who are underneath them are, are creating and spreading. And I think that's super fascinating. And that's something that we haven't really you know, started really looking at in a serious scientific way yet in, in organizations. But I think that's going to be like an interesting future question. So interesting. I have this intuition whenever I think about a certain work culture being more or less competitive, more or less jerky. I tend to blame the CEO or the boss or whoever is in charge. And of course, they have disproportionate responsibility for establishing a work culture. But the colleagues that you have, they also play a role in Whoever you are as an individual, you play a role. You have a certain opportunity to change the work culture. And I guess it can be mm-hmm. easy to just be a jerk and then blame everyone else. Like, ah, oh, my boss, it's really their fault when you could make the first step. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think, you know, the C-suite, the top leaders, they often sort of set the culture. 
but they often are also products of the culture that's happening underneath them. And I spent a lot of time working with, um, you know, senior leaders and they, and they actually feel helpless to change the culture because no one really listens to them. Um, you know, it's hard to get honest feedback, you know, and so they're kind of throwing their hands up going, I don't know why everyone's so miserable here because people won't tell me and I'm not at the right level to really like see how this behavior is getting manifested interpersonally. So I think this idea of just always kind of blaming the, the highest status person isn't effective for change. And I think you're right. It really comes down to these kind of day-to-day interpersonal interactions that we also have control over, you know, a lot more control over than I think used to be the case in the past. This might also be driven by just a communication problem. So I'm thinking of what social psychologists would call pluralistic ignorance. It's the phenomenon yeah. where you have a whole group of people who think something about all the other members of the group that is completely inaccurate, right? So you could have a workplace where everyone is acting in a competitive, hostile way, but deep down, everyone actually wants to be kind and just get along, but no one wants to make the first step and actually behave that way because that would be naive or gullible or who do you think you are, that you are better than the rest of us? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And in fact, it's really fascinating when you when you go into organizations and you ask them what they actually truly believe. And it's often the opposite of what even very powerful people are doing because they think this is what everybody else wants. I've seen this a lot with like the well-being boom, where organizations will do things like offer yoga classes or some kind of like additional health benefit. And Everyone in the C-suite is like, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's keep doing this. But I have no intention of using those things because I have no time. And it turns out literally everyone is thinking that. I don't want to do this. I don't even have time. Except for the gym rats that are like, sweet, the company's going to pay for my gym membership. They're the only ones who use it. But everyone is thinking this sounds good. We ought to want to want this. So let's all pretend we're on board with yoga but none of us are going to yoga, <laughs> you know, and it's like this weird Potemkin village problem with some of these things. So I definitely see this happening a lot. Is it easier to change a healthy cooperative culture to a toxic one than the other way around? Oh, so is it easier to go from toxic to healthy or healthy to toxic? Exactly. Oh, I think it's easy to get toxic. <laughs> I think it doesn't take much. I think we often have, here's why. And I think it's also really hard to go from toxic to better because we are very conflict avoidant, at least in Western cultures. We avoid telling people hard truths. We don't learn how to give negative feedback, especially upward feedback. And even low level conflict issues like who should be the first author on a paper or am I getting enough credit for something? People avoid those conversations. They would rather like live in a state of uncertainty forever than actually just have the uncomfortable five minute interaction. And until we actually kind of get over that and learn how to have the conversation, it's really, really hard to go from toxic to better because it requires hard truths and it requires navigating tricky conversations. And it requires you to be really honest about sort of what you're thinking and feeling and, and not sugarcoating things in a way that feels politic. And I think that's really, really hard for people. You describe all the behaviors of the different kinds of jerks and how we can detect those behaviors and protect ourselves. Now, I'm sure if I were too lazy to read the book and instead go on YouTube to detect, you know, people who are lying to you, who are manipulating you, I will find lots of videos on, you know, three quick and easy tricks, uh, what to see in their face and read in their body cues. Yeah. <laughs> are there any sort of reliable nonverbal signals in this very complicated and contested literature that we can actually tell someone is a jerk? 
Yeah, this is a good question. I think, you know, I'm kind of like a, a Ziva Kunda person. So I believe that there are some sort of very clear clues or cues that most of us agree on are inexcusable behaviors. You know, if someone is chronically interrupting you, for instance, or they're objectively insulting you, they're kind of like truth by consensus stuff that, you know, we all agree upon is that. But I think most of the time, people aren't actually giving off that those these clear signals. And, you know, to kind of like, go back to the lie detection research and what you just mentioned on YouTube, the reason why we can't rely on this information is because one person might consistently give off certain clues to what they're thinking and feeling, but that's not consistent from person to person. So if someone like looks up into the right, maybe they're lying, but that doesn't mean everybody who looks up to the right is lying. And so trying to train people to just learn patterns of nonverbal behavior and extrapolate from that what people are thinking and feeling across cultures, across ages, you know, it's just, I think, a fruitless endeavor. And I think we often try to do that instead of just asking people what they're thinking and feeling because it feels more comfortable to try to mind read. Um, but I, I'm just not a huge fan of it. I think that often we make the wrong assumptions and they don't get corrected because we don't ever sort of say them out loud. Like, oh, I thought you were mad at me. You just kind of walk around for 10 years thinking that person hates you <laughs> without sort of testing the assumption. And this happens to me all the time because I have really bad RBFs. And so I'm used to just looking different than what I'm actually thinking on the inside. Um, and I and I think it's a it's a problem. So I'm kind of against these whole like you can learn five tricks to read people and then you're gonna know their, you know, innermost thoughts and feelings. I tend to just think that stuff doesn't that doesn't generalize very well. There seems to be a composite lay conception here of jerks are better at reading us. They are better at perspective taking. They know what we are up to. They're better at reading our minds and then manipulating us. Is there anything to that idea? <laughs> well, there's a little bit of a kernel of truth to that in, in specific domains. So I've done some research with um, Gavin Kildup and CUU on um, what's called status acuity. So this is this individual ability. We just published a paper on this that some people can just watch short clips of teams, you know, um, interacting strangers, and they can tell who has the most status and the least status. And they can do this pretty reliably. You know, nobody's perfect, but some people are better than others. And, you know, the way they do this is by looking at some of those shared cues that we sort of know are relevant to status, dominance behaviors, expanded posture, talking over people, holding the floor. These things do have shared meaning. And if you if you attach the right meaning to those behaviors, you can become very good at reading a room, of walking in and seeing who has power and who doesn't. And, you know, do I think this is the most important skill at all? Absolutely not. But I do think this is a skill that can predict your ability to kind of be nice to the right people um, and kick down to certain other people. The skill can be used for good, too. It's actually really important for cooperation and coordination in groups. But there are some jerks that are a little bit more skilled at these types of things. And, I, and I'd say... It's the jerks that get away with it, right? So if you're bad at this, let's say you insult the boss's spouse or something like that, you're going to get fired. So it's the ones who are who are good at doing this, who can sort of actively do it and get away with it, that, that are the most worrisome in their workplace. But they're not like magical in any way. I think we can outwit them with the right strategies. What is interesting about status acuity is that it's rarely taught explicitly to anyone, right? No one ever sat me down and was like, 
And oh, some professors have more power than other professors, and professors have more power than grad students, so be careful. And you don't notice the power hierarchies that exist until you like violate them in an embarrassing, <laughs> in some embarrassing way. Yeah, that's right. That's how you learn. <laughs> do you think, do you think、uh, we are not explicitly teaching people because no one wants to be the kind of person who's too concerned about that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's to teach it is to. Um, implicitly endorse status hierarchies a construct, and I think、yeah. right now there's this huge rejection of status. Right, you know we should get rid of status. Academia is the most status-oriented place I've ever worked, and <laughs> I've had a lot of jobs. So for us to deny the existence of status is crazy to me. Some of us have jobs for life, and we can never get fired. And some of us who are two years younger, you know, three years younger, or less experienced, can't get a job. <laughs> You know, and the people who are in the former are completely in charge of the people in the latter. I was just talking to Jay Van Bebel about how the most powerful role you can have in academia right now is being on a search committee, because you know I've been on many of these committees, and all it takes is one bad conversation in the bathroom for you to get like nixed off the list. You know, I, I've seen people get removed off the list for. You know, really small things like, like saying an off-putting comment in the Q and A session of a panel 14 years ago. It just takes nothing, and but so it's an incredible amount of power. So for us to deny that, you know, and that power is confounded with status. It's often whoever is kind of the most prestigious person in the room. You know, it's not always the case, but I think in academia it is. For us to deny that exists is just silly. Until we get rid of assistant professors, full professors, associate professors, postdocs, we name things based on hierarchies. We're just gonna always have that kind of baked into our jobs. Well, now that we're talking about controversial topics and linking all this jerk behavior to academia, do you think there's more jerks in academia than in the average job? <laughs> you know, I think that.、Um, This is such a loaded question. I've met a lot of jerks and a lot of nice people in all the fields. Here's the problem with academia: we don't have human resources. <laughs> we have no intermediary step or group of people that steps in when things are going out of control. And none of us are actually trained, right, on how to actually manage. It's actually remarkable that you can be the PI of a lab and get like millions of dollars from grants, having never taken a management course. Like not knowing what you know, someone who reports to you should be doing, but we don't ever get that training. It's all skills. It's all、um, you know, task training. It's learning how to do the very specific skills of our job. It's never interpersonal. So I think because of that, and because our promotions are often sort of yoked to our individual accomplishments, it just sort of breeds that behavior. And on top of it, there's just not a lot of accountability for bad behavior. So it's not that I think we're all jerks, or you know, even that there's a selection bias. I think we're not held accountable in ways that other people are, and it's very hard to get rid of us. <laughs> so you know, that combination I think、uh, allows for some behaviors to just go unnoticed for way too long. I mean, I've had to report people to Title IX before, but like for you to get to that point, you had to have been doing bad stuff for a decade. <laughs> you know. Really, a long time, and there's no one trained to kind of stuff. And it's it's actually striking to me that we don't have human resources or any kind of, you know, out external people that can come in and help us. But I think that's just the way our system is, and until we fix it, we're just going to have these 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 kind of continual problems. But they exist everywhere, you know. I love the diplomatic ending to that answer. <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of jerks in other fields, but the thing is, they often get fired, so they bounce around a lot, right? In academia. You can just be stuck with someone for like twenty years, <laughs> so that's the, that's the main difference. 
let's move from jerks to the targets of jerks. What are the kinds of people, what personality traits characterize the kinds of people who are most likely to be taken advantage of by jerks? You know, I think this is often um, a structural issue. So people who are newcomers at work, you know, who are who don't have the what we call hidden curriculum. They weren't raised in a culture that taught them the difference between what people say and what they really mean. You know, I was raised um, pretty blue collar. And so, you know, I didn't know all of this like secret stuff that a lot of my colleagues who have professor parents have, you know, with that education. And I think that kind of hidden curriculum can make you very susceptible. I think that, and if you work for someone who's cut you off socially, you know, because you're new or you're flying under the radar or, you know, you're lower in status, whatever it is, that really can structurally make you very susceptible. In fact, most of the targets I've talked to, when I ask them, you know, um, how many other mentors do you have? They're like, what are you talking about? I don't have any other mentors. This is my only mentor. Well, that's a huge red flag that your network is like very, you know, contained within your lab or your small group of working people. Um, you know, are there some people who are just kind of more susceptible to getting walked on in life? Sure. But I actually think the structural things way more heavily than being naive or giving people the benefit of the doubt. Those things can, they can matter, but they can certainly be outweighed by the more kind of structural components of, of your past experiences. And then also sort of where you are within the organization. You mentioned that in certain environments, jerks are more likely to succeed, but that is different from they actually make better leaders or better high rank positions. Yeah. Is jerk behavior beneficial in any sort of environments in terms of actually creating a better culture or producing the increasing the bottom line of the company, any sort of beneficial consequences? Yeah, I think this is something that we don't talk enough about. So you hear a lot of conversations like, why do we keep promoting jerks? The more interesting conversation is, what do we do with someone who produces amazing quality work and happens to also be a jerk? Because often those things, that that's the forced choice we're at. No one wants to promote a jerk who sucks and who doesn't do anything and whose work is crap. Those jerks don't get promoted. It's the high achieving ones that, you know, produce the most that actually do get promoted. And I think It's not that being high achieving is associated with being a jerk. I just think those are two orthogonal constructs. But when they do correlate, when you do have a, someone like a kiss up, kick downer who is both very good at their job and also very good at torturing people who are at the same level as them or beneath them, that's the kind of conundrum you're in. And there's plenty of people who are like that, right? You know, bulldozers, for example, are people who are very well connected. And if they don't like the direction that your group is going, They can go to people in power and get it overturned. And you you hit impasse after impasse. You're starting to fight with each other. Why can't we hire? They have a very you know strategic set of skills that allows them to get there. So I think, of course, there are types of interpersonal behaviors that allow talented people to thrive and enable them to thrive in those environments. And I think in cultures where the more status and power you have, the more voice you have, and the less you get questioned over your decisions, those are places where you often kind of see these things co-occurring. We talk a lot about work environments and contexts, but of course there is a difference between the objective actual environment and the perceived subjective environment. I'm thinking here of what psychologists have called the triangle hypothesis about how people see the world differently. And this hypothesis looks at how selfish versus kind people 
see other people. And what they find is selfish people tend to think everyone else is selfish, but kind people tend to think everyone else is either kind or selfish or somewhere in between. They have this more balanced view. Is that something you find with jerks that they think, well, everyone else is a jerk and would have done the same? This is just what it is? That's a really great question. It's this sort of like, is there such thing as a reality anyway, right? It's all eye of the beholder. It's very much, you know, I, I study a lot of interpersonal interaction and the biggest predictor of how you're going to be seen by someone is just how they see the world in general, right? So we know this is hugely important um, in dictating human behavior. Yeah, I think absolutely people project their own kind of views of the world onto how they expect other people to behave. And then they often sort of engage in preemptive strikes. So what we see with a lot of jerks is they sort of do the thing that they think you're going to do to them, mm -hmm. but they beat you to the punch. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you think you're going to free ride this week? Like, I'm going to beat you to the punch and I'm going to just send an email saying I have the flu for the fifth time before anyone else can send the email that they have the flu for the fifth time. You know, and whatever version of jerk is, it often is this assumption that that type of behavior is in the air and you just sort of have to get there before other people do. And, you know, especially with people like kiss up, kick downers, where you can only have one. Right. You can't have a whole team of this or it doesn't work. Right. <laughs> you can't be like kicking down and kissing up and then also being kicked down. It's hard to navigate that. So they're very alpha about it. And they show up and they're like that. I'm the kiss off kick downer. I am like claiming my status right now. Like it's a little like, you know, peeing on your tree or whatever. <laughs> like this is how I'm claiming the spot in the group. And they often are doing it before they can get out competed. Um, or outclaimed in the in this trickery. So I love that you're sort of bringing this up. This idea that it's a lot of it's about projecting how you see the world onto you know your expectations of others' behavior, and I think that's often the stem of what we see um, with this behavior at work. That's such an empowering narrative, right? Because these jerks oftentimes they have the cynical worldview and they say, "Wow, it's just a harsh world. Don't be naive about it." And it can be really compelling, and then you feel bad about yourself, but actually they are the ones invoking this reality that doesn't exist, and then they bring it about. Yeah, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's, and a lot of them, that is their reality. They came from an organization where they got burned really bad. And so, you know, they're, you're suffering from their past relationships, basically. And, you know, I think what's really interesting when you ask people about their perceptions of organizations is they're highly variable. They were a lot like going into dating relationships, where if you've been cheated on 50 times, you're just going to have a bias that everybody's a cheater. And in fact, there's research on this. You overestimate cheating by like, you know, 200% or something like that, because you always been cheated on. Therefore, everyone cheats. And I think the workplace is a lot like that, too. I think, you know, we get like we have these traumas and then we show up to the new workplace with them, expect them to happen and engage in preemptive behavior that actually inadvertently encourages it again. <laughs> and we get ourselves into these like terrible cycles. So I think you're right. I'll just edit out this part and submit it as my dissertation. Yeah, I, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I wonder the positive psychologist in me thinks, okay, we can fight jerks and we can take our company culture from minus 10 to zero. But what if we want to take it to plus 10? How do we build friendships at work? How do we um, establish a positive work environment where people flourish? Yeah, I think meaningful connections are, are key. I think You know, I think the hump that we have to get over first is just having clear communication at work. So we can't go from being afraid to give negative feedback or, or knowing something bad is in the air, but putting our head in the sand to having close friendships. You have to get through that kind of disclosure phase. You have to learn how to have conflict with these people to build the trust that you need for the positive stuff. And I think 
you know, when organizations take like a CEO or a leader or whatever, and they're like, I'm just going to disclose all my dark secrets and warts and all, that's useful, but not if they don't trust you in other ways or not if they think that the organization at the end of this day still benefits kiss up, kick downers or Machiavellianism. That stuff just comes across as really inauthentic and, and like virtue signaling. So I think you have to do the daily grind. You have to move the needle on people's day-to-day interactions and learn how to communicate and have those uncomfortable conversations, but do it in a small, frequent way to get them to actually have meaningful disclosures that don't come across as, you know, the boss crying because he has to fire all these people. I just feel so bad about that. That shit never goes over well when there's a culture of distrust. Like you have to sort of do the first part, the communication part before you can you can do the kind of disclosure of trust and, you know, close friendship building stuff. It seems that you have been thinking about jerks and annoying people more than any reasonable person should have. How cynical are you about people? Are you still able to see the good in people? <laughs> you know, it's kind of been a running joke since I became a researcher that I only like to study the dark stuff, <laughs> you know, anxiety, discomfort. I really love watching social interactions that are awkward. It's just <laughs> fun for me. Yes, it's it's a personal issue that I struggle with. I am not the world's most optimistic person. Best case, I feel like I'm a realist, but um, I am more cynical than most. And I think it's just by nature. I've been like this since I was a little kid, but it is something that I, I try to have some self-awareness over and at least try to compensate for that by giving people practical tips. Uh, but but I do worry sometimes that I think every interaction is awkward. I think nobody knows how to be honest about feedback. And I'm like grinding my students all the time. Like, you just have to say the thing to the person. I think I should be first author and then lay out why. And then they come back to me a week. They're like, I didn't do it. I'm like, oh, it's not that hard. And they're like, no, it really is really hard. <laughs> you know, so um, like this person's writing for me for the job market. And yeah, I just have to sort of realize that I, I do have a darker take of humanity. And I also tend to, I'm a lot more blunt than most people are. Um, and I, and I, and I'm married to a Canadian and I know that that's not everybody. <laughs> But you live in New York, so it should be fine. But I live in New York, right? Like I found my people. <laughs> so, But I grew up in California where it is very different. I grew up in Southern California. It's very, very different. So yeah, there's huge cultural differences, but yes, it's, it is a daily challenge for sure. <laughs> so I guess that explains why your research, what your research How did you become interested in research in the first place? Why did you want to become an academic? You know, I start, I'm like one of these boring people. I started doing research my freshman year of college. Um, I was Wendy Mendez's research assistant and when I was 18 years old. And she was doing these crazy studies where she was like painting birthmarks on people's faces. And then you'd interact and then you'd see how physiologically threatened or challenged they were. So I worked with her and Jim Blaskovich, and my first introduction to social psychology was dyadic, awkward interactions. You know, I was a confederate in a study where my whole job was to just give bitchy feedback to the other participant. Anytime they got an answer wrong in what's called this remote associates test, I would make a face. Ugh. And, and Wendy would be lying on the ground in the experiment room, laying on her, like her whole stomach, like her whole body, and she tapped my foot and say, look, bitchy, do it again. <laughs> and I was like, this is science. This is awesome. <laughs> and we're still very good friends and collaborators today. She's my best collaborator. But, but that was like 
my introduction to psychology was not what most people do when they're like, I was an RA and I entered data. I'm like, no, I was making faces and having someone tap my foot and getting makeup painted on. And, you know, and then after that, I, I, I worked with Nalini Mbadi for a couple of summers at Harvard. And she like just really embraced me as like the first free summer intern. This was like a weird concept back then that you would just volunteer. So I got to see all her cool research on thin slices. And I listened to these disembodied audio clips of doctors talking and just like, you know, Snoopy voice. And it was wild, right? So that was my introduction. So I started doing research uh, very early on in college and I kind of just never turned back. I just kind of like stayed on this path. Um, and I still do weird ass studies. <laughs> I completely blame Wendy Menace for all these weird studies that uh, we we still put people through uncomfortable situations all the time. <laughs> but I don't think I could do anything else because it would be boring for me. <laughs> so. That was not a boring answer at all. No, that was incredible. <laughs> Many academics dream of writing a book and you have actually done it. What surprised you the most about the process? And was it enjoyable at all? Um, <laughs> I have a complex relationship with this process. <laughs> it is very different writing a non-academic book than writing for an academic audience. And I'd say You know, if anyone's thinking of doing this, write some op-eds first, because you have to learn to really distill your work in a way that is understandable to people, that is completely jargon-free. And you have to get to the point really, really quickly, because there's this impatience. I mean, one thing I've learned is no one really reads an op-ed that's longer than 800 words. So if you can't do it in 800 words, don't bother trying at all. You know, mm -hmm. so these kinds of tricks, I think, helped a lot. I signed my contract and then I think the pandemic happened maybe like six weeks later. So I, and I didn't write my book. In fact, it was bad. I, I got, I remember the moment like eight months in where I got an email from my editor. That's like, so your first draft is due in a week. And I was at the dentist with my son and I was sitting in the car because I wasn't allowed to go in because of COVID sitting in my car at the pediatric dentist going, Oh shit. I haven't even started. Like, I haven't even thought about this. Like, I'm just trying to get through first grade on Zoom, <laughs> you know, having like a total panic. So I got my shit together. I wrote the book. But um, the promotion is a lot. It's you pretty much write a book to promote a book. So, I mean, that part I under, I didn't anticipate a lot of my academic um, friends that have gone through this for a huge help in anticipating what comes next. You know, Ethan Cross told me how to do Uh, a podcast. I was like, what do I buy? Like literally like what headphones do I buy? <laughs> so that kind of stuff was super helpful and you need to have that network. But yeah, it, it's a lot of work and it um, promotion is, it kills your soul because it feels very derivative. And we were not used to like saying the same thing over and over again. Like that's why I told you I love this podcast because it feels like very enriching. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is, it is hard and do it when you're on sabbatical, <laughs> which I did not do. <laughs> so That is my advice. <laughs> Do you find it harder to write a book chapter than to write another scientific paper? Oh, you know, I go through phases. So I can, I, I'm a very black and white person. I can either completely write something and I can do it for four days or my brain isn't functioning at all. So I think, you know, I got good at op-eds and then I sort of got bad at scientific writing because I hadn't done it in a while. And, you know, I wrote a, a, a chapter um, in for advances for Bertram Gronsky, and it was hard. It was like, I'm not used to writing sentences that are like previous research has found. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, or like I forgot APA. 
Like I forgot. I didn't know. I just am used to embedding links. So little things like that, you actually forget. And the task switching is very hard, like going from non-academic to academic writing. So that was a that was a part that I, you know, I got rusty at academic writing. So now I'm doing that more now. But um, but you definitely it's a little you know what it feels like when you're in elementary school, at least where I grew up in Southern California, I spent my summers walking to Target to get ICs or Taco Bell. It was not intellectually stimulating. So I feel like four months without reading a single word on a page. And then you go back the first day and your eyes hurt. You're like, oh, word. That's what it was like. It reminded me of being like 10 and like forgetting a skill that I, I, I thought I had. And I had to kind of get back into it. I was, had to dust off the cobwebs. So that definitely can't happen. What do you enjoy the most about people's reactions to the book? I imagine there must have been people reaching out, thanking you, telling you their stories. What are some uplifting examples maybe? Yeah, this part has actually been the best because it's hard for us to see evidence that we're actually impacting people. Um, so I think, you know, when people tell me, you know, one person told me that she used to cry every day at work and now she only cries once a week at work. And I'm like, amazing. <laughs> you know, like little things like that. Or I was been, you know, one person told me she was afraid to give her boss feedback for a really long time because she doesn't feel like she's good at conversation, but she just kind of followed an equation I laid out. And one of my chapters and she was able to do it. But I think, you know, helping people actually is nice, um, you know, in a very concrete way. And I think, you know, getting people to admit that something was hard and that they did it and that they didn't think they would be good at it. But it turns out they were. That is a really nice feeling. And I think most of us, the, the things I try to tackle in the book are complex and they're hard. And most of us are afraid of them. So I think it's it's kind of nice just to see that. I I like to, you know, kind of help people, but, you know, and then just like encouraging people to have frank conversations and then they realize it's not as scary as they thought it was going to be. Um, but, you know, so I think, so some of those are the more uplifting things. I, I definitely have people who come to me still at my job at NYU and they're like secretly want a new job. Can you, can you get me, can you help me, <laughs> you know, but don't tell so-and-so. And so I have all these like weird secret relationships <laughs> where like people don't know, but I like it. I think it's actually kind of fun. So, yeah. Well, this conversation was kind of fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you so much for your time again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsypod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.